I'm Matt Holt, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. We are back for episode number 14. On the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. We also have Brian Kettleson. Say hello, Brian. Hello. And Carlicia Campos. Hi. And our special guest today is Matt Holt, who we're going to talk a bit about uh, TLS, uh, Acme, and his own project, Caddy. How you doing, Matt? Hi there. Good. So we're having a little bit of deja vu here because we did have you on the show when we were kind of kicking things off and doing some, some dry runs and all that jazz. So this is actually fun because we've had, you've had some new uh, things come out for Caddy recently. Yeah. And we're a bit more seasoned now, so I think that works well. Yeah, the timing is good. So want to kick it off with uh, Caddy, because I think that's probably the most common thing everybody knows you for. You want to talk a little bit about what Caddy is and kind of uh, your motivations behind creating it? Sure. And that'll be a good, um, that'll be a good way to seg into the TLS and Acme conversation. So um, Caddy is a HTTP2, HTTPS default web server. It's written in Go, of course. And uh, last week, we, well, two weeks ago now, we released Caddy 0.9, which was a pretty big release because I rewrote it from scratch. And um, as a whole new architecture, uh, inverted all the dependencies. Um, but this is actually really cool because the idea about Caddy now is that it's not just about serving the web. Well, it is. It is first and foremost a web server. But the goal here is that. Um, other applications written in Go that use the network can take advantage of Caddy's features, um, such as its easy configuration with that text file called the Caddy file and um, its magic TLS features. So any server type, whether it be HTTP, which it currently is, or if someone writes a, uh, I don't know, maybe a Git server or a mail server, if it can take advantage of, of Caddy's TLS features. Um, there's actually a DNS server on its way, so you can use Caddy to uh, to serve DNS here pretty soon. And this is uh, Meek's uh, core DNS project, right? Yeah, it's kind of his mm -hmm. rewrite of SkyDNS. Yep. So that'll that's a Caddy plugin, or it will be available soon. Oh, so this is this is a plugin to Caddy rather than uh, core DNS kind of leveraging shared libraries. It's actually the other way around where Caddy takes plugins. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. So I was really excited when he forked this, thinking that it would be beneficial for a DNS server, and turns out that it is. Uh, but the problem is that you have a bunch of duplicated code. Um, you have to maintain a fork. And so to alleviate some of that pressure and to help Caddy serve a wider audience and really do what I want um, people to do, and, and that is use TLS, <laughs> um, is... I redesigned Caddy so that it can handle different server types other than HTTP. So now the DNS server is a plugin. That, well, it will be. Um, the HTTP server is a plugin. Uh, and so it can do all those things now. Oh, that's awesome. So I want to kind of circle back for one second because you happen to mention that 09 was a complete rewrite. So how long did that take and what was the motivation behind kind of just scrapping it and starting over? Because um, it's just kind of new new functionality and new ways of looking at your project? Yeah, so uh, people's feedback really expanded my vision a lot of what they wanted and what was possible and what Caddy really was. On day one, for me, Caddy was just a, a web server that makes it easy to, to spin up a new website in just a matter of seconds. Um, but after the launch of Let's Encrypt and the the more people using Caddy, I realized that what people really want is just an easy way to configure their standard web services and to do so securely without having to worry about it. Uh, and so Caddy.9 makes that possible, but I had to redesign a lot of it um, to handle more. Because before, the only thing that a plugin could do is handle HTTP requests, basically. 
Um, but now Caddy can be extended so that plugins can do a number of things, um, including serving something completely other than HTTP. So that was kind of the, the goal there. And that took about, that rewrite took almost six months. There was a lot of code um, to, to splice over piece by piece. Wow. But I love Go and it was a pleasure. <laughs> and this was all while maintaining uh, and doing bug fixes to prior releases, right? Yeah, um, one or two. Admittedly, I stopped maintaining <laughs> the older <laughs> um, release once I got about two months into the, the rewrite. So PR is accepted. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. So we get awfully excited about Caddy around here, uh, mostly because, uh, well, actually, there's two reasons. One, you know, everything that I serve on the web is served through Caddy, and it has been for, I guess, about a year and a half now, almost since Caddy was released. And, you know, so we love Caddy a lot. Uh, but I think another reason that I get particularly excited about Caddy is because to me, Caddy is kind of the poster child for how awesome and easy it is to do something and go. You know, when you look at the features that Caddy has and then you look at the Caddy code base, it's, it's not as big as the code base isn't as big as you would expect it to be. And it's, it's kind of this great big bucket of awesome. Yeah. I think it's a good showcase for some of Go's capabilities, um, at least the web um, and maybe some of its crypto portion. Uh, super easy to do things. Most people and most Go developers don't really need Caddy. Uh, if they just need to serve static files, Go makes that one or two lines. You know, it's so easy. Um, use Caddy if you want a more integrated environment. Um, but it's a really good showcase for these people who come from Node or Python or PHP environments, uh, and they're working a lot in those languages. To use something like Caddy um, to is a breath of fresh air for them, uh, from what from what I've heard, because. They're used to installing runtime environments and dependencies and setting up process managers and everything. Uh, but with a Go program like Caddy, it's again, it's a good showcase, I think, because you just set it and run it and forget it. I think even from the using it as a customer kind of perspective, like we serve the GopherCon and Gopher Academy sites using it, like some of the stuff just makes it so easy, like the, the Let's Encrypt uh, functionality, like just easy to get certificates yeah so and caddy is is designed to be um so if you're familiar with web servers like apache or nginx uh, you configure them at a you configure a web server with caddy when you configure it you don't think about servers so much you think about sites and so you can think of it this way every 10 years or so a, a new layer of abstraction comes along to build upon another layer of technology that's existed. So, for example, recently we're seeing uh, chatbots that are emerging on top of messaging platforms. And so you might view those chatbots as kind of another layer of, of abstraction on top of another technology, the messaging protocols. And in a way, I think in a similar way, Caddy is that layer above um, the web layer or the server layer in that you don't have to think about the server so much. You can, you can just configure your sites and think about it from a site perspective. And, and these site configurations give you the added functionality that you need as a website owner. So uh, again, its ability to render markdown as HTML on the fly is something that is really helpful and productive for site owners these days. Um, but that's a layer above the web server. Uh, and so I'm hoping that, that we can step up from just, um, worrying about the web layer and focus on your sites and what you want to get done as a site owner. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so all the security stuff is just taken care of because that's, that's the layer below your site, all the TLS stuff. You don't have to worry about it so much. Um, and features available to you like Markdown or Abiola's uh, Git plugin that allows you to deploy your site with a Git push that kind of builds upon an existing layer of technology that now you don't have to, um, it's not a separate thing anymore because, again, site owners find that productive and useful. Yeah, that was the, the biggest appeal for me. Once we started playing with the Hugo plugin, with the Git plugin, uh, it 
replaced a ton of ugly workflow that I had previously. Every time we did an update to the GopherCon site or we made a new blog post on blog.gopheracademy.com, that was, you know, minutes of work that I could have done something else. And that's, that's, I think for me, you talk about the security being a layer below the web service. Uh, the, the real boon for me in Caddy is the layer above those plugins that make my life drastically easier. Cool. Yeah. And I hope, I hope there will be more plugins uh, with time. Uh, there was one I remember seeing that was uh, WebSockets, where you kind of bound standard in and standard out uh, to a WebSocket. Yeah. I'm interested to see some use cases there, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that was inspired from a project called WebSocket D, um, which is devoted to doing just that. Okay. Which is also written in Go. Pretty cool project. See, this goes to the... Uh, uh, who who claimed it? Somebody named it Kettleson's Law. Yeah. Somebody this, this <laughs> afternoon called it Kettleson's Law. The whole everything interesting in the web world. I think that might have been Scott Mansfield. Yeah. Brian said it on a show a long time ago and somebody claimed it as Kettleson's Law. So. <laughs> I also said that the whole internet is being rewritten in Go. So you can quote <laughs> me on that. It, it seems that way. Have, have you looked at... Um, any stats to see how many websites are running Caddy these days? Um, no, I don't know where to get that information. I mean, reliably. So mo- a lot of people that are security conscious will hide the server header. And I don't, it doesn't phone home. I know that there's an estimated 30,000 downloads, but that doesn't include any that are automated installs from scripts. Right. So it'd be interesting to see, but I mean, yeah, I mean, for a lot of us, it, it's just so easy to just get up and going. And like I said, one of my favorite things is the kind of Let's Encrypt and SNI support. Yeah, we should talk about that because there's no reason that only Caddy can do this. Um, I think every Go program that uses the network should do this to, um, for, for a number of reasons. So, I mean, well, Brian, you, you, um, you write a lot of network software. Do you, do you think about this? So at, at Backplane, we do distributed load balancing and we definitely think about it and we use uh, Let's Encrypt to get certificates for all of our clients. So yes, we think about it a lot. Cool. How do you, how do, you do that? I didn't write it. I don't know. Magic oh. happens. Anthony wrote it. <laughs> Anthony Votis. That's good. Um, the, I guess the reason I ask is because, um, so you can only, so Let's Encrypt is a service that lets you get free TLS certificates. Uh, and the thing is that it's an automated service, so you don't point and click your way through a uh, checkout form and then check your email and click a link, download a certificate and install it. So you need code to, to use this. And there are some great Go libraries out there that make it possible to add this layer of security to your application. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I was talking to some people uh, and some people dispute the need for it, um, saying their application, their use case, they don't need TLS at all. Others are saying that actually <laughs> was just talking to someone, a project or a team leader at a large um, organization here recently, and he was extremely skeptical of Let's Encrypt and their certificates. Um, and so there seemed to be a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of confusion about the topic as well that I think would be good to clear up a few things. But when you say skeptical in, this case, in the case of this person, do you mean in terms of how much um, security it is actually adding or what exactly? I think in this case, you're referring to whether, um, whether the Let's Encrypt uh, organization can be kind of trusted with being a root CA. Is, is that what you're referring to? Not, not necessarily the security of TLS itself. Um, with that particular person, yeah, it was the, the legitimacy of Let's Encrypt. But I've seen conversations all over the board from their certificates are not secure for some reason um, to TLS is broken in general to uh, Let's Encrypt is... Um, is not a long lived organization or something. And all of these claims or disputes are actually really irrelevant. Every, and I'm gonna go out on a limb here and I'm gonna say that every application that uses the network 
which is many Go applications, I'm sure, need transport layer security, unless your threat model assumes that your transport is already trusted. Is TLS broken? If you do it wrong, yes, it's broken. But the current modern standards are pretty good. Um, and with TLS 1.3 coming out, there, there was one or two concerns about it, but it's not finalized yet. But it, TLS 1.3 looks really promising as well. Um, if you have a problem with TLS, it's probably more due to the problems with PKI, with public key infrastructure. No, PKI isn't perfect, but it's pretty good what we've got right now. So for, your, for you to assume that your transport is already secure is a really big claim. And I think that only few use cases can really make that claim. I'd, I'd go out on a limb and say that anybody who thinks their transport layer is secure is probably uh, deluding themselves. There is no secure network anywhere. So one exception perhaps is the loopback interface. Your loopback interface is probably safe without TLS. Yeah, the loopback probably is. And even though I wouldn't do this uh, at Comcast, I know at least for the cable side, they have their own backbones and private internet. So, and that's, of course, segregated from other networks. So it's like, uh, I guess in some cases there, no. but still there's multiple mm-hmm. parts. I'm going to argue. The, I'm, I'm not advocating that you don't <laughs> encrypt there, but it is kind of one of those, uh, you know, depending on the service and how well, but. I think it's just a good idea to use TLS in general. And I mean, think about things like Kubernetes and all those, it's using TLS in between all of the services. There's just no reason not to use it, right? Um, and especially like as Matt was kind of advocating too, like with all these, this tooling, it becomes much easier to do that and to set this up. And a lot of reason why people I think avoided it before is getting certificates um, for stuff and wildcard certificates and installing these things. It, it was really time consuming. And, and most of the time people were generating their own certificates and then you'd have to set up your applications to trust them or, or just use insecure. And then kind of what, what's the point if you're doing that? So I think we're, we live in a different space now where it becomes easier and there's, there's no real reason why you shouldn't, even if you think that bad actors mm. aren't, aren't on your network. They are. Brian, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to beat that dead horse. They are. <laughs> Assume they are. If you if you believe your transport layer is secure, you need to um, you need to kind of guarantee four things: um, integrity, uh, confidentiality, non repudiation at a technical level at least, and um, oh, authentication. Of course, you need to know who you're talking to. So, um, confidentiality is obvious. You don't want people snooping on you. Now, if you can trust that your private network is actually private and that people who have access to the network aren't bad actors, okay, maybe that is covered. Then you've got authentication. So you need to make sure that each machine knows who they're talking to. Again, if you can trust your network hardware and all the other software that interacts with your network, um, maybe you have that covered. Integrity is one that people often forget. If they have a site or service that they say, oh, there's no private information here. There's no sensitive information. I don't need TLS. That's false because your application will break if it gets malformed data, probably, or your website is a liability if you're displaying content that is that you shouldn't be displaying. So integrity guarantees that it's not modified in transit. And the non-repudiation is uh, more complicated, but at a technical level, it just it basically means that the use of a private key has been invoked so that the party who transmits uh, the parties who are involved in this authenticated transmission, they have proved like they can't deny that they were part of it. Now, again, there's at a technical level, that's true. Um, But those are all valuable properties, those four um, things. And so if you're not going to use TLS, you need to be really sure and careful about that. Use TLS. I was going to ask earlier, for the people who do want to use TLS, what are the things that people need to watch out for? And I also wanted to ask you, and I'm trying to not to jumble a lot of questions in one, one sentence, uh, to talk about the ACME protocol. So, because apparently Less Encrypt is one entity, and there are others like Start Encrypt, and um, they are not all the same. And 
not all of them implement the ACME protocol. And is it relevant that, that these entities implement this protocol? What is it, what is spe so special about this protocol? Okay. Yeah. So good question. So um, if the first question was, what should you watch out for if you're using TLS? Is that what you asked? No, if you're getting a TLS from a, a particular CA, like let's encrypt is one, but there are others and there are just different places to get a certificate from. Um, so when you get a certificate, um, cryptographically, it doesn't matter what kind of certificate you get, as long as the certificate authority is trusted by your users. There are certain certificate authorities that I would favor more than others or not favor less than others um, based on their business practices and you be the judge right and so, so the whole point of getting a certificate is to have that third party validate you to speak for you in, in that sense and to put out a good word so you want to choose a certificate authority that you also trust and not just because you can buy certificates from them but because you believe that they're doing business well and that their mission is good and that you can trust who's on their team. So let's let's actually talk about that for a second, because we, we talk about trust. And I mean, anytime we talk security, right, that's always going to come up is trust. That's ultimately what it comes down to is who do you trust? Right. So. Let's let's talk about some of the things that can go wrong if you choose a certificate authority that may not be trustworthy. Like the types of things that a, a certificate authority is able to do on your behalf or man in the middle type things that can take place uh, by using a certificate authority that they themselves are um, issuing certificates on your behalf to other parties or their their keys have been stolen. Yeah, um, it's so I'll use an example and this is just a recent news item. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not endorsing or I'm not suggesting one way or another. But recently, Symantec was um, uh, issued certificates uh, that were SHA-1 signed. Now, SHA-1 is officially deprecated for TLS certificates because of weaknesses with collisions uh, that have been recently found. So they issued certificates that were SHA-1 signed, uh, and then they revoked those certificates um, because they said it was a mistake and, you know, they were called out on, on this as well because certificate transparency logs uh, raised the alarm. And then um, when they officially asked after that for the issuance of seven SHA-1 signed certificates as a special case, the request contained unusual strings in one of the fields of the certificate. Uh, and that was concerning because uh, at least the security researchers say that a collision attack could likely include such unusual strings somewhere in the certificate. Uh, and their explanations for why those strings were there was considered insufficient. I'm actually taking this, I should give due credit, I'm taking this um, paraphrasing from the, the Bulletproof TLS newsletter, the Feisty Duck um, TLS newsletter, and it's fantastic. Hanno on Twitter does a really good job curating this. Anyway, so here you have the certificate authority whose practices are disputed. And now in the end, they issued the certificates, but they took out those questionable strings. So, I mean, you be the judge of who your certificate authority is, but cryptographically remember that no certificate is better than another. You can make your own certificate. The only difference is that your certificate isn't trusted by everyone out there. Exactly. But how me, let's say I'm, I'm a developer, okay? And for some reason, I don't want to use less encrypt. Let's say I don't want to pay and they renew every three months. I don't want to go through the renewal process every three months. Why not? Or, let me say, let's say I have reason. Let's say I want to at least consider other entities. How do I go about trusting an entity? What are the rule of thumbs that I need to, to think about? What do I have to, are there things that I can look at? So like, does this company does this or? Um, I, you know, I just, the way I do it is I just follow the TLS news, TLS related news. Um, certificate transparency logs is like a raw source of who's issuing what certificates. Um, whether a certificate authority even submits to certificate transparency is probably a good indicator. 
I, I just, uh, Google research, they do some really good Google security research. I should say they do some good investigations into certificate authorities and kind of a good alarm system there in that they'll publish a blog post when something alarming happens, uh, especially related to Google services. Um, just to follow the news, I suppose. Oh, and how about the Acme protocol? I was thinking it sounds like a big deal. I also noticed that not every company that issues certificates implement this protocol. What is it and why does it even matter? Okay, yeah. So the Acme protocol, this is, this is a really big deal um, because it automates away the job of certificate authorities. Now, we still need certificate authorities, but um, the manual process of interacting with them goes away. And so uh, the ACME protocol stands for Automated Certificate Management Environment. This was developed um, after three years of research at um, University of Michigan. And I think, yeah, I think that was one. J. Alex Halderman uh, was one of the, the researchers there. Um, the project, as it came to fruition, was it came through the Internet Security Research Group and Mozilla funding and um, and their brand now is Let's Encrypt that, that is really making the Acme protocol shine. And so what this means is that um, you have this certificate authority, Let's Encrypt, that is trusted by all the major browsers and vendors, and their only way of issuing certificates is automated using this Acme protocol. So this protocol um, allows them to verify your claim that you own a domain name and they can issue you certificates. And the protocol has been vetted um, pretty thoroughly for flaws and bugs. Is it perfect? No, they found a couple, but they fixed it. And, and they're still in beta. Um, but uh, this protocol basically automates in two seconds what normally would take you uh, half a day or more to do manually. At least, yeah. So the certificate, so the, the certificate authority um, is actually irrelevant here. The fact that Let's Encrypt is the automated certificate authority is just a matter of circumstance right now. But any certificate authority can implement ACME. It's an open protocol. It's published. I see the link here in Slack for the spec. So I'm hoping that over the next few years, we'll see several ACME-capable certificate authorities appear. Uh, no reason to let Let's Encrypt be the only one, although they have are doing a fantastic job pioneering it. And that's also important because as I understand it, you can have you can be a CA, but the 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 rules of, of how you validate a certificate authority, they are very loose, correct? Um, certificate authorities have pretty strict uh, they have pretty rigid guidelines and I don't know a whole lot of details because I I don't work for one. <laughs> but um, they are not the Acme protocol is not any less, it's not any more lenient in issuing certificates than traditional certificate authorities. It just, it automates the process, right? If we, if we think about the traditional approach of getting a certificate, right, they typically want you to add uh, a DNS record, right? To show mm -hmm. that you have, you have control of the authoritative zone, right? Like, or they make you add something to the web page or things like this. Typically. There's some sort of process to validate that you own a domain. And a lot of those things can be automated. So is it, is it so different than, um, you know, having a protocol? And I'm not familiar with exactly how the protocol works, how it, how it vets the, who owns the domain. Exactly. But this process of validation, if there is a protocol and the company is following that protocol and we know that that protocol validates it in a secure way and we can trust it i think it's a very good um it's a very good initiative because the validation you can have implemented a, a validation process that's either manual or can even be also automated but not be very secure and that's happened before right in fact yeah we saw a um a similar problem with uh start encrypt yeah uh, where they had a, an issue with their uh, API, a security issue, and they don't use Acme; they they do something else. So you have to you have to be careful. It's it's not easy 
Um, Acme is pretty good. It, it relies on the integrity of DNS, just like traditional domain validated certificates. And I mean, DV certificates get their name because they're issued based on validating the domain name and ownership of the domain. So if your DNS is compromised, it's not any different now than it was before. So Acme, again, just speeds it up. Um, you can see Caddy do it in two seconds. Your own Go programs can do it in two seconds using Go libraries like Lego. And so, yeah. All right. Well, this is a good opportunity for us to take a break and thank our sponsor, Equinox. Uh, many of you probably create applications that you need to ship to end users or customers. And if you've been in that boat like I have, you'll know that there are two things that are pretty important. The first is making the installation experience easy. And the second is keeping the customers up to date. Equinox solves both of those problems. The installation experience is dead simple because they create Debian, RPM, Microsoft installer, Mac packages, and they have a brew install option that lets your customers get your application pretty much any way that they're comfortable doing it. They also have a hosted download page for your application. So uh, any way that, that you want to get your customers that app, uh, Equinox supports it. That second feature of keeping your customers up to date is probably the harder part of delivering your application and Equinox lets your programs self-update, which is, I think, probably the neatest thing ever because they, uh, they just give you library code that you can use to automatically you know, add an update flag to your command line apps. That's really cool. They, they deliver binary patches right in line so your apps can self-update. Equinox is free for community and personal projects, and you can see more about Equinox if you go to equinox.io slash go time. I use Equinox and I strongly recommend it. Now that we've talked about our sponsors, I have a question for Matt again, which is um, the economics of the certificate space. You know, just two years ago before Let's Encrypt existed or, or was, was doing anything, uh, certificates, especially on the website, were insanely expensive and a big moneymaker. Uh, how do you feel the landscape has changed now that Let's Encrypt is out and giving everybody free certificates for nothing? Well, I'm not a certificate authority, uh, and so I don't know like financial numbers exactly, but I'm willing to bet that they're probably scrambling. A couple certificate authorities I've observed have made um, rash moves uh, in terms of public relations <laughs> um, that I wouldn't deem wise or sensible because I think the idea that people can now get certificates en masse for free is um, concerning to them. Uh, but the thing is, I don't think that automated certificates, whether free or not, I don't think they're going to, because Acme, by the way, doesn't say the certificates have to be free. Um, at least as far as I know, I don't think the automated certificates are going to put CAs out of business. I do think that it's going to make them more accountable, which is a good thing. And it will make them focus their, their business on the actually the valuable part. Um, there wasn't ever a whole lot of technical or business value in plain domain validated certificates especially since everything on the CA side is automated. It was just the customer that had to, to manually do everything. I think once everything rolls out as HTTPS, because certificates become ubiquitous, I think that once everyone starts getting that green padlock, then maybe no one will get the green padlock except for the people who are paying for the extended validation certificates, which really does have business value because it adds trust. Um, for those banks and those other institutions that need to to earn their customers' trust. Well, didn't one of the web browsers just make that change recently? Like, um, I want to say maybe it was Chrome. There, there was an update I saw just a few weeks ago that uh, standard DV validated certificates were going to be shown gray and EV would be green. They'd still have the padlock, mm -hmm. but but I agree that the enhanced validation is where the money is going to be in the, the CA industry. Yep. Right. That's, that's the plan. I think I have kind of two, two concepts there. One is, um, the free certificates. 
what percentage of that is taking away from paid certificates, right? Like this may be new people coming on that didn't want to go through the burden of setting up certificates or or financial paying for them and wildcard certificates because they want more than one subdomain. So some of it I don't think is taking business away. And I think the other side of it is, you know, I think your your big guys are going to pay for extended validations and stuff, right? I think then it just becomes like a tier of how much validation did you go through to get your certificate? And, you know, your banks and financial institutions and healthcare providers, I think, are going to pay, you know, excessive amounts of money for these extended validations. And that's kind of my take on it. I don't know how much, I don't think it's going to put them out of business, but I don't think that they're, um, they're going to make the money that they currently are. And then the other side of it is, is if TLS is almost free, maybe the domains cost more if they're wanting to keep the, the same income. It's kind of hard to tell. Right. It'll, it'll cause the CAs to, they'll have to be a little agile here to, to stay relevant. But again, extended validation is really, again, valuable. You can't automate that either. So I say charge for that. And I think businesses will pay for that. As long as the consumers perceive value, they will. Right. But as we, as we educate more about uh, what TLS is, what encryption is, what security is in a web browser, you know, maybe those extended enhanced validations matter less. Be interesting to see. It's possible. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, before we move on to our kind of like news and interesting projects part of the show, um, I did want to touch back on Acme for a second. We kind of talked about like what the the model is for to manually validate your domain to get a certificate. Do you want to walk us through kind of how Acme does that? Sure. Um, so Acme relies again on the integrity of DNS, and the spec presents three different challenges that you can solve to get a certificate to prove your ownership of a domain name. So, um, for example, Caddy will solve two of these challenges for you. By default, without you just out of the box, it'll just work. The third one is for special cases. Some people prefer it. So the first two are the HTTP challenge and the TLS SNI challenge. The HTTP challenge is basically where you serve up a resource at an HTTP endpoint on your server. Um, the Acme CA will do an authoritative DNS lookup, make a request to your server for that special resource. And if it can find it there, then it proves you own the, the machine or that you own the domain name. And so you can get a certificate. Caddy um, does this one. It does the TLS SNI challenge as well, which is the same idea as the HTTP challenge, except that it performs a special uh, TLS handshake. And if your server, um, which is the client in this case, can complete that special handshake with a special server name in the SNI extension, uh, then the Acme CA will validate uh, for you and give you the certificate. So Caddy can do both of those for you by default automatically. There are Go libraries that can do at least the HTTP challenge. That seems to be the standard one. And uh, the problem, though, with these two is that it requires opening a port. Um, the HTTP challenge requires port 80, and the TLS SNI challenge requires port 443. Those are hard-coded into the spec. You can't change it. If you want to use a different port, you have to forward it. Um, if you use TLS termination, you can't do the TLS SNI challenge, obviously. Um, or if you're behind a, like a load balancer or other complicated infrastructure, you may not... Uh, the, the outside Acme server may not be able to reach your machine inside. So there's the third challenge, which is the DNS challenge. And this one, you're, you have to set a record in your zone file on your domain name, or I should say for a special name on your, on your host that validates that you own the DNS, um, that you have access to that. And the Acme server will perform an authoritative lookup for that special record. It's a text record. Uh, and if it has the right value, then it will issue the certificate. So the nice thing here is that the Acme server doesn't need to communicate directly with your server. So you don't need to open any ports or anything. The downside is that you either have to do this manually or you have to give your Acme client credentials to your DNS provider and they have to have an API to allow you to set records. Now, unfortunately, lots of DNS providers have an API of some sort. So... Caddy, for example, ships with support for 10 D 
DNS providers, uh, especially the most common ones, Cloudflare, Namecheap, DigitalOcean, etc. And you can specify these credentials in your environment variables. And, and so Caddy can perform the DNS challenge as well as of 0.9. So those are the three challenge types. And if you are having if you're having a hard time with Let's Encrypt or with the Acme protocol in general, I'm willing to bet it's probably because your tooling is not quite arrived yet or it's not mature yet or you're asking a lot from <laughs> the let's encrypt servers uh, sometimes people run into rate limits but honestly this covers 95 to 99 i'm guessing i don't know percent of the use cases so is there anything else that a listener should know about either caddy or tls or acme before we we move on is there anything you'd, you else you'd like to add <sighs> encrypt <laughs> Just use TLS. Um, do it right. Do it well. Look into the tools. Um, we'll probably have, I guess, links in the show notes for some of these TLS resources. Yeah, we definitely will. But if you think you don't need to encrypt, think again and think really hard about it. Yay. Retweet that. Quote it. You mentioned that there are Go libraries or a library that will help, will help uh, people put uh, TLS on their servers. Did you mention what it was? Um, I didn't. Um, I can do that. Yeah. So the default, of course, is Go's built-in listen and serve TLS. Uh, and I think the net package also has a TLS listener that you can use. Now that is if you have your certificates already, you just pass in the file name of the certificates and it will load and use those. Now your service may run for a year and then your certificate expires and you need to renew it and you have to reload your Go application. So if you want to use Acme and automate all of this and forget about it, there's a library by Russ Cox, um, RSC slash Let's Encrypt on GitHub, that, um, that I believe solves the HTTP challenge at least. And then there's a really cool library that I like called Acme Wrapper. That's DKHumor slash Acme Wrapper on GitHub. I probably pronounced the username wrong, but um, that's really cool because it's a lot like HTTP listen and serve, but with just one line of wrapping code to again, automatically manage your TLS features. Of course, Caddy does all of this too. So all of its TLS features are available for your program to use, especially if you want to integrate with Caddy. If your web service is configurable and you want to just serve over TLS without having to think about it, you can, you can do that with Caddy too. And I'll, I'll be talking about this more at .go <laughs> later this year, at least for a few minutes. Good plug. That's uh, no, November? October. October. Would, there's another one in November. That's the Brazil one, right? Yes. Yes, that is. <laughs> yeah. But there is a Gotham Go is also in November. That's it's right. November 18th. And then the Brazil one is early November, yeah. I believe, right? So I get perfect timing for interesting Go news, right? So Go for Con Brazil. Exactly. I'm so excited about that. It's going to be the first Go for Con Brazil, the first Go for Con in the whole Latin America. So we're expecting it to be very, very exciting. It's going to be on November 4th and 5th. And Bill Kennedy is going to do a workshop on the 6th. And Bill Kennedy is going to be a speaker. We also have Francesc as a speaker. And we are ex uh, have CFP. The CFP is open. We have uh, submissions in English and in Portuguese. It's all on the website. The links are there. We, and when I say we, I'm helping out a little bit. So I'm, I feel involved. <laughs> You're joining the, the list of insane people who have decided to organize or co-organize a, a conference. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I'm trying not to. Uh, we tried to, to warn you and you still I know. did it. We did. I, know. I swear. We pulled you aside at Gopher Con and said, don't do it. Don't do it. I know. I just can't help it. It's just everybody's so excited and doing such hard work. So it, it, sponsors are welcome. It's going to be a great way to reach awesome developers in Brazil. Uh, what else? We expect 300 people. We can even fit more than that, but we, are, we think 300 will be easy to get. And uh, CFP is open. The registration is open. The sponsorships are cheap, 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 because uh, it's it's a small conference and uh, the exchange rate is crazy. So take a look at the, at the prospectus. Uh, support is so appreciated and needed, especially for this first one. We really want to set the standards for it to be 
a yearly event in the technical landmark in the tech community in Brazil. And for anybody in the U.S. wanting to travel internationally, I did the math on what it would cost to go, and it's actually not bad. The ticket itself, uh, what, what was it, Carlicia? Was it like $30 U.S.? Is the ticket? The, the ticket is like a meal price. It's yeah. very, very wow. low. It's very, yeah, it'll be like, uh, if you get it now, it's $15. And if you get it at the day of, it'll be $30. And the hotel was, I think, $50 a night. So, and then plus airfare, I mean, I would have, I would venture it's probably like 800 bucks or something to fly from the U.S. And the location is an amazing island in Brazil in November summertime. I cannot stress that enough. It's going to be beautiful. Hey, somebody was asking for GopherCon Hawaii. I mean, this is probably as close. I mean. <laughs> That's right. This, it yeah. sounds pretty awesome. Now I'm feeling like I need to go. I'm getting some FOMO. I know. I, so I told Carlicia that like I, I want to go, but uh, I'm also going to submit a talk to KubeCon. So I need to like see how that goes first, because I, I think I would literally fly out this, the last day of the conference to make it over there. Submitted to both. And I also wanted to say there will be simultaneous translations. So if you are an English speaker and you don't speak Portuguese, we are totally ready and expecting you. So. That's awesome. So Go Projects. I have, I have one that uh, I saw come through. Uh, I think I saw it on Twitter a few days ago, but it goes along with this whole security mindset that we're talking about this episode, um, which is Hewlett Packard released uh, a library called GAS or a command line tool anyway, to like statically analyze your code for um, common security vulnerabilities. And some of which were actually validating um, the TLS ciphers and protocols within your project. And then there was some SQL injection vectors, I think it looked for, and I think using some, uh, some crypto primitives and stuff that were weaker. There's, there's a whole kind of slew of things. And it'll actually be interesting now that this is here to see how many more security um, checks people add to the code. Yeah, I saw that. It looks really cool. Did you take a look at that, Matt, at all? Yeah, I saw that. Um, I haven't used it yet and or looked at it in detail. Um, with a few of the comments that were posted, I could uh, understand how it might come up with some false positives, but you know that's probably better than false negatives. Yeah, any any static analysis tool, you're going to end up with checks that that might be false positive or don't apply. I mean, even GoVet sure. has some that that don't really work all the time, but it's better to have them and and know that you're ignoring them than not have them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only problem I think I find with with false positives is you accept them and I would rather have them than not have them. But the difficulty comes in how they're addressed. Right. Because you ultimately want to ignore them. Right. Because you don't want to keep looking at the same thing and being like, oh, yeah, I already determined that's not an issue. But you also don't want to ignore it because there could be that may actually become a real vulnerability. Right. And I think I struggle with that. Like, how do you how do you trim the fat on the the warnings being thrown without, you know, continuously ignoring what could become future problems? That that might be a, a show of its own right there. So somebody write a library for that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like every, you know, so many runs or if the line changes or surrounding lines change, I want to know to look at it again. <laughs> So, and then also along those lines, um, Stripe has a package uh, called Safe SQL, um, which also looks for some SQL injection vulnerabilities, which I haven't run, but I'm interested to see how that works from a static analysis side. Because I'm used to using tools like SQL Map and stuff from the client side looking for uh, SQL injection vulnerabilities that are exposed. So one that I saw that I thought was very exciting was uh, Sync.Air Group, which was released by the Go team, I want to say a week or two ago. And that is a pretty slick package that kind of helps you do all of the right things when it comes to uh, synchronization and concurrency and, and organizing a bunch of Go routines to do stuff. It lets you get the errors back out of them easily. It lets you cancel them nicely. So it's, it's, a, it's a thin shell around Sync.Wait Group and the context package. But uh, it's nice that it's all done 
correctly and you can count on that to to do the right things when you're doing concurrency and that's one of the things i think in go that's awesome is our concurrency but it's it's really easy to do it wrong so that's a, a great package to to use sync.air group so this is uh kind of like say an http request coming in and you're kind of fanning out to do um multiple pieces units of work kind of concurrently and possibly those fan out even further and this helps kind of propagate the errors back up to the kind of originating go routine as well as canceling all other go routines in the event that one of them errors out exactly so you can use it for uh, just that that concept that the cancellation cancellation you can use it to run lots of go routines in parallel and keep them synchronized or you can use it as a pipeline to run, um, uh, pull data between Go routines and still capture all of the errors in between them. So it's, it's, a, it's a neat package. I intend right. to use it. I now intend to use it. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say about the funk test one. Did somebody skip that on purpose? No, uh, what's the funk test one? I put that in there. I thought that was pretty cool too. Yeah, talk about it. Um, so it, it makes it easier, well, less mundane to write table-driven tests. Uh, this is by Brad Fitzpatrick. And I haven't actually used it yet, but looking at it, my mouth is watering. I write table <laughs> tests all the time. Yes, so do I. I agree. My mouth is watering, too, because I love table tests. And uh, this makes it a little bit easier, just cleaner. And, and I'm wondering, so if it's from Brad, it's sanctioned, we can use it? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> No worries about having that extra dependency. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess you weigh weigh the costs, right? But um, for for little projects, this seems like a really great great thing, at least. That's neat. It looks pretty neat. I haven't seen this yet. That's that's very slick. Now I kind of want to play with this. Can we like <laughs> just like pause the show for a few minutes while I like mess around with this? <laughs> I'm lucky. I have a bunch of new tests to write, so I'm gonna <laughs> probably be using it. So here's one I stumbled across on Twitter the other day, and I'm going to butcher this poor guy's name, but github.com slash Matthias Insaralde slash go dash dot net. This is a go wrapper for dot net that lets you do basically Go ish things using dot uh, net assemblies. And, you know, the first thing I thought was, you know, put down the crack pipe and walk away slowly. But I can see that there are definitely opportunities for the go world to communicate with all of the amazing software that's in the .net ecosystem especially now that .net is multi-platform so a very interesting tool look forward to seeing that one mature so this is this is so that you can call out to the .net runtime from your go code correct and it may work the other direction i haven't tested it so i don't know but it it may work the other direction too call in to go from .NET. I don't know. It is interesting, though. I mean, it's similar to kind of Seago, right? Like, we'd prefer not to write Seago, but it does afford us the ability to uh, interoperate with code that already exists and is well-vetted and performant. So, yeah, this will be interesting. So one thing that came to mind immediately for me is that um, it's, it's relatively simple to write user interfaces in the .NET world, you can write, um, you know, some, some pretty decent uh, GUI screens in .NET and having a, a Go wrapper to that might make it a little less painful to do a, a GUI application if you really needed one in the Go world. I don't know. Ooh, Brian, that's black magic right there. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm not willing to try it myself personally, but, <laughs> but I would love it if somebody else did and let me know how that worked. That would be an interesting proof of concept. Well, and uh, just kind of like a cross-platform uh, GUI library, right? To have native interfaces. So if you could interface with .NET here to kind of do a native Windows interface and, you know, GTK or Qt or something on the Linux side. And I've never written a GUI application for Mac. What's that? Is it Cocoa? Is that what the library is underneath? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you have to use Interface Builder. It's ugly. I don't know what's under the covers there. I, I know I use Xcode to do so. What, what the library is underneath, I, I have no clue. So, and then outside of, um, 
outside of projects and news, Carlicia is now a convert to Vim, right? This is a big deal. It is. So let me qualify. <laughs> I have been using Vim for the last few years, and I've used it, used it, um, you know, just straight up Vim for a few months. But then I went back to an IDE and used Vim in the side of an IDE, and that was Adam. And I just uh, I broke up with Adam last night, and that's not Adam from the change log. It's Adam. <laughs> I just I cannot hear the difference. So the editor Adam, him and I last night we split. Not the robot from Real Steel. Also not that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I last night I broke up my fam, and I got I already was running Jesse's uh, .vimrc. Jesse Frizzell? Yes. I was running her uh, .vimrc file. And I went through Fatit's tutorial notes. He gave a tutorial go for con. I was not there, but he wrote it out. It's all spelled out. It's beautiful. So I didn't even finish the whole thing. I just got the, I just skipped around for the things that I wanted the most. And I'm going to go back and do the rest. So basically, he tells you exactly what to do. Jesse already had a bunch of the shortcuts that he was uh, uh, saying, uh, suggesting to, to do. So I was like, okay, cool, I'll set. I'm just cruising through this. And now it's, you know, I've got BIMGO going. I'm not going to go back to an ID. And I'm pretty happy. And if you are interested, I suggest you take the jump and do it because it's, very easy, relatively. If you know some what things do, you just copy and paste stuff and done. I'd actually like to see those notes because I feel like I've been using Vim for entirely too long that I'm kind of like stuck in my ways and I feel like I'm, maybe I'm antiquated. Like I should, I should look at Vim with fresh eyes again and change kind of what plugins and things I use. I, you definitely should. I always do that. Every once in a while, I go back and look. And that reminds me of another good point that he's always releasing things, right? He's always batch releasing a bunch of cool features. And I talked to him this morning, and basically, this is the rundown. He has a changelog file on the repo, and there he will list things that will be released. And as long as your package is on is, uh, you know, is refreshed to the whatever the latest master branch, that is the released version. So if you check the repo, you see that something new has been released, you refresh your master, and then you run the Go install binary because some of the stuff he does is Go, is related to Go tools, and some of the stuff is uh, related to Vim. So you just update all of those things and you got fresh new shiny features freshies and, um, and also i discovered that the right place to go talk about vimgo is the vim channel on the gopher slack awesome yes. well welcome to the fold <laughs> thank you you can't leave now otherwise brian and i are going to be upset no it's pretty awesome if you're doing go and i like it because everything is there everything is released as one package. So there is no conflict. There is no like, because for me, I need to, I'm going to work today and I can't have surprises. I can't update my ID and have, oh, this thing is now is conflicting and I don't have my shiny feature that I rely on so much. I can't have that. And that kept happening with Adam. And so with Vim, it's, I can, it's going to be consistent. The, the way Vim Go is released is as a unit, so that doesn't happen. And another advantage is I'm now working with a Vagrant box on my machine. I can just upload that there, and I have my Vim, my ID is beautiful. <laughs> Happiness. Happiness. See, and now we have our free software Friday, but I feel like we've all given Vim and Vim Go love. Like, does that count? But it counts as some, for sure. I think, I think we should still list some. All right. So if, if you're not familiar with our free software Friday plan, it's just our way of uh, taking a moment to say thanks to all of the people who release software packages in the open source world that we use, that we love. Uh, they don't have to be Go related at all. Um, um, not often are they all Go. Today, I'm choosing Python, which is a language that I never personally use but it powers two thirds of everything I do. I, I don't know how many times I look up at the terminal window at the title 
and see that it's actually Python behind NeoVim or it's Python behind some other thing that's running like um, Supervisor D. So thank you to the Python team. Yeah, Python is is ubiquitous. It's out there everywhere. And even though I don't use it intrinsically, I use it a lot. So thanks, Python team. How about you, Carlise? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about... Um... One thing that I have, I can't, I can't believe I haven't mentioned before, which is exorcism is double good because it's open source, of course, and you can work on it if you're looking for an open source project to uh, practice or help out. And also you can use it to learn Go or get better at Go. And I also found out that there are a bunch of issues uh, labeled good first patch. So for people who are looking to contribute to open source, doing Go, and they're not very experienced, or they're shy, or they want a beginner uh, project, this is perfect. And you will also be helping, you know, the, this project, which also is kind of meta, right? Because it teaches people. <laughs> you're trying to learn, and you're helping people teach uh, Go, and of course, other languages as well. That's why Exorcism is extra super good. And then how about you, Matt? Yeah, um, I have been really happy. It's a Go project um, with a quick implementation in Go by Lucas Clemente. I, I don't know. I, I'm a huge fan of modern web technologies. And this is the first and only working quick implementation I've seen in Go. Uh, quick is a protocol that Google is experimenting with that is built on UDP and offers faster HTTPS communication, basically, and with some other benefits. Uh, one of my favorite is if you change networks, so like let's say you're downloading something on your phone, and then um, you switch from Wi-Fi to cellular, the download will continue without interruption. Even though you have a new IP address and you're on a totally separate network, um, it's because UDP doesn't have a connection to break. And uh, it still has reliable transport and stream multiplexing and security. So I'm really looking forward to where Quick goes with Quick Go. Yeah, did you see what I did there? <laughs> so that actually kind of reminds me of a, a project that I used. Uh, I don't even know how long ago this is. I think it still exists, but it was called Mosh, which was Mobile Shell. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I think it came out of MIT and it used kind of the same concept of using UDP. That way, uh, kind of if you had lag or, you know, you closed your laptop and move, you could stay connected. Um, I use, I use Mosh every day, Eric. It's, it definitely still exists and it's awesome. Oh, yeah, look at this. Well, it doesn't look like it has a, a new release recently, but still, that's awesome. I'm going to drop a link in the, the channel too because it was pretty cool. I'm going to have to do that again. Yeah, Mosh is, Mosh is great. Thumbs up. So you're actually still using it? Yeah. I keep a Mosh session open to my Linux machine from my Mac, and it doesn't matter whether I close the lid, whether it suspends, hibernates, whatever. It's just always there. So we, we get extra projects this week on our shout outs. So for me, I want to actually thank Wireshark because I've actually, uh, the past couple of days, I've had to be dealing with it quite a bit. And, and I, I guess also should shout out to TCP Dump too. Because it's uh, Wireshark uses libpcap under the covers, but so nice to be able to just follow TCP streams and diagnose kind of uh, network protocol issues. And in this case, it was actually MPEG streams, but still, any network connectivity like Wireshark is awesome. And there's a lot of, uh, I'll have to shoot out some links and stuff, but there's actually a lot of nice um, kind of custom configurations and filters and things like that that you can set up to make it more usable for. Um, diagnosing specific things and i think i even saw like a grpc one a while back too you can kind of hand it your certificates to be able to to read the connections as it passes through so if if you spend a lot of time in wireshark can you actually see the matrix <laughs> if you squint right <laughs> so so i use wireshark enough to be familiar with it i use wireshark uh not enough for me to completely lose my mind and memorize all the filters and things like that. So, but I imagine a lot of people do spend a lot of time in there, especially if you're reverse engineering network protocols. 
So, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, because I've looked at Wireshark before. It's definitely a tool that I need to master. If you have uh, links to extra good tutorials, I've gone through the manual. It's kind of like dense. If you, so drop those links there, please. Actually, um, there's two books um, I used to have on my bookshelf. And I actually loaned them to a friend a couple months ago. I'll send uh, to you or link in the show notes. Um, one of which is actually like um, walking through particular like troubleshooting scenarios. So it's almost like example uses rather than looking at documentation. It's like, oh, well, if you were trying to discover X, you know, here's what you do. And it itself came with some nice configurations out of the box too, which might be nice for me to look through, to go steal the book back so that I can look through at some of those configuration things that I used to like. Because I don't have any of that stuff. I didn't commit it to like my dot files. But yeah, I'll, I'll show you some, uh, some good tutorials or books and stuff like that for Wireshark usage. And TCP dump is good to use too, because you won't always have GUI access to stuff. So if yeah. you can use TCP dump, you know, on the server from a container or things like that and kind of poke around and filter and, and look for things going on. And Wireshark also will read the TCP dump um, logs too. So you can kind of run TCP dump elsewhere and transfer over your, your PCAP and, and look at it through Wireshark. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So with that, I think that we are about out of time. I think this, this show wins the award for the most protocols discussed. I think we covered all of them. Right. Or at least nearly. <laughs> There'll be a test. I hope not. We should do that. We should have a quiz. We should not have a quiz. <laughs> the only person that's going to pass it is Scott Mansfield. I think we should just give him a star now and move on. <laughs> and no, no commentary. I, I'm actually <laughs> surprised. He, he must not be listening live anymore. Ah, that's too bad. Gave up on us. So I guess, unfortunately, it is time to close out the show for this week. Uh, I definitely want to thank everybody who is on the panel here today, Brian and Carlicia, and especially Matt for coming on and talking with us about half of the protocols that we discussed today and Caddy, <laughs> which is a fantastic project. If you haven't used it yet, um, definitely go download it and give it a try. Um, definitely thank the listeners, those listening live and those who will be listening live. We've dropped a few more episodes. Um, so... Everybody can catch up and hopefully here in the next couple of weeks, we will be, um, or even days, depending on how fast we do stuff, we'll get it as close to real time as possible. And then we don't have to be trolled by Francesca anymore. <laughs> if you're not subscribed already, you can go to GoTime FM. Um, we have a newsletter that we'll be starting there. So you can go ahead and sign up. Uh, we are on iTunes and Android. Uh, best way to get us is GoTime FM on Twitter or github.com slash gotimefm slash ping if you have ideas and suggestions for the show or just updates to um, things that might go in our show notes, things that we got incorrect or additional things that might help people. Uh, with that, uh, thanks everybody and goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, Matt. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>